Hi, friends, and welcome to Robcast number 34. And this one is called Enough Earth for My Mule. Uh, and this story, I want to tell you a story. It's an old, old story. And uh, it's got this line. Actually, it's, it's an, a conversation. It's an exchange between, between two characters that happens at the end of the story. And it's so good. It has helped me so much. So I'm going to tell you the story. It's going to take a while to sort of unpack the different characters, give you some of the background. And then at some point, we're going to get to the end part of the story where the one character says something and then the other character responds. And it's the response that, ugh, it's just so good. So this one's called Enough Earth for My Mule. Before we jump into it, two things quickly. My beloved friend Elizabeth Gilbert's coming by the house this week, and how could I not turn on my mic and record us talking, you know what I'm saying? So here's what I'm thinking. Maybe you have a question for Liz. Maybe you have a question for Elizabeth Gilbert, and you could send it to me. Put it in the comments. You'll see on Instagram, I posted a picture of Elizabeth and I together. So in the comments on at Real Rob Bell Instagram, just type in whatever your question is for Liz, and then the good questions I'll ask her, and then you'll get to ask her a question, and you'll hear her response. And uh, we'll post that recording in the next few weeks. And there we go. Simple enough. So if you have a question for Elizabeth Gilbert, post it on the picture of she and I that I'm posting later today on the Instagram. And then secondly, I cannot believe you people. We, uh, I just checked my Charity Water page for my birthday campaign. I asked all of you to give me, to give a donation to water for my birthday. Um, 100% of the money, every last penny, goes to the actual um, drilling of wells so that people don't have access to clean water, can have clean water. And you all, we're at $98,000 you all have given to get people water. We're going to able, be able to get thousands and thousands of people um, access to clean water. From what I can tell from the numbers, it looks as though about 1% of you gave to my birthday campaign, and thank you, thank you, thank you. The campaign's going to be open for another 23 days, um, but I am just so blown away, and so many of you on the comments on the Charity Water, my Charity Water page, you just said incredibly nice things. So uh, I'm just moved beyond belief. The link to the Charity Water site is on my Instagram bio, or it's uh, my.charitywater.org slash birthday campaign. You can get there, and there's still 23 days to contribute, and let's see just how many people we can get water. But once again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. And now, let's jump into it, shall we? Enough earth for my mule. And uh, this story, for those of you keeping score at home, comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now leprosy, uh, that's the English, the word that gets translated in English here from the Hebrew Probably it's less like fingers and toes falling off and more probably some sort of infectious skin disease. The storyteller wants you to know right away we're dealing with a great man, a powerful man, a strong man, a man who knows how to win. This man is a winner. But he has a problem. He has some sort of skin disease. 
Now bands of writers from bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, when you read the Bible, remember that the Bible was written by a small group of people, a minority living under the oppression and rule of larger global military superpowers. So whether it's the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans, the writers of the Bible were part of a tribe, a small tribe that had been knocked around, conquered, and crushed time and time and time again. And one of the reasons so many people completely misread the Bible in our modern world is if you read this book and you're a citizen of an empire, a big, successful heavily armed nation, you're going to miss some of the central themes because this book was written by the underdog. This book is written by people on the underside of power, peoples whose nations had been invaded, people who had been crushed, who'd had their king's eyes gouged out, who'd been dragged away into exile. Actually, the Hebrew scriptures weren't really compiled into the Bible that we know to be the Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament especially, until the Babylonian exile. So it wasn't until this group of people were conquered, their temple was crushed in Israel, and they were dragged miles away to a foreign land with foreign stories, foreign gods, foreign power, and they found themselves in exile miles from home that they even began to compile a book that was sort of the book of their people. Why? Because when you find the very existence of your tribe threatened, what do you do? You ask yourself, do we have any stories that might give us some sense of cohesion, some, some identity, some glue, a narrative, something to hold us together? That's the Bible was actually written or compiled and edited as we know it in response to persecution, hardship, suffering, oppression, and essentially what do you do when a massive army strides in to your village, kills half the people, gouges out the eyes of some people, and then the few people remaining puts you in shackles and marches you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away to a foreign land where they don't speak your language, they don't worship your God, they don't have your currency, they don't have your education, they don't have, and nothing is familiar. So when you read this book, one of the questions the writers keep bringing up is, what do you do with your power? And the Bible offers again and again and again a pointed, brutal critique of those who use their power, wealth, and resources to build their own empire bigger at the expense of others, to basically increase their own power and wealth while stepping on anybody in their way. And this critique of power is a theme that comes up again and again and again and again. So you'll notice even here in this story, right away, we're told about a very, very powerful army general in a neighboring country, but he also has a weakness. He also has a problem. And the contrast to him is his country has some raiders who had gone out and kidnapped a young Jewish girl who would have had essentially no rights in that day. 
and yet she's the one who says about the military general, actually, there's somebody I think who could fix you. I think there's somebody who could help cure you. So what you have again is this very subtle thing the storyteller doing here is always poking holes at the ones in power. Whoever's powerful, oh, again and again and again, the scripture writers mock them, ridicule them, point out where they've gone wrong, usher, um, utter incredibly harsh critiques of their use of power and violence and coercion. And in this story, there's just this jab, like right away in two paragraphs. Apparently, the most powerful man here, the commanding great army general, has a problem he doesn't know what to do with, but there's a helpless, captive, kidnapped, young Jewish slave girl, and she's the one who actually knows what he should do. Once again, turning the story upside down, showing how power is frail, it's temporary. No matter how strong it appears, there's always something fragile in whatever power structure seems to be dominating in the moment. Now, Naaman goes to the king, his master, and told him what, what the girl from Israel had said. So here you have the most powerful man in the land, the king, talking with the other most powerful man, his general, about what a powerless, captive, slave, kidnapped, young Jewish girl has to say. He told, so he tells him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow, he's talking about a neighboring king, by the way, why does this fella send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? Once again, the storyteller shows these leaders, like this king of Israel, to be just a completely, what would you say? He's like kind of out of his mind. Like he receives this generous gift and a request to help this man be healed. And he's like, what is he doing trying to pick a war with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, how badass is that? Elisha is a prophet. He sort of, as uh, you know, the prophets do, he sort of lives close to the land. It's a simple man with great power. He hears that the king is losing his mind. He's like, send that general to me. I'll show him there's a prophet in Israel. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so where are we? So, uh... Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. So picture like a little hut, a little house. It's probably very simple because you know the prophets, they live close to the land, the, the original minimalists. And the prophet, remember then that the prophet is the one who speaks truth to power. The prophet is the one who isn't intimidated by whoever's on the throne. The prophet is the one who says, Wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that during the massive economic recession in 2009, the CEOs of those companies, actually their salaries went up while regular people lost their homes and lost all their savings? Wait, wait, wait. That 
isn't right. The prophet is the one who is fearless. The prophet's the one who lives close to the lamb. The prophet is the one who speaks up on behalf of everybody who's ever been screwed by the system. The prophet points his finger at the one in power and says, you have a responsibility to use your power and wealth and resources to bless those on the underside who need a helping hand. The prophet is this fearless voice of social justice who confronts oppression and confronts greed. So picture the prophet in probably a very simple sort of little house and up pulls this motorcade of horses and chariots with this neighboring nation's most powerful military commander. Elisha sent a messenger to say to the general, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. Do you love it? He sends some sort of messenger or servant and just says, go wash seven times in the Jordan, your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman, the commander, the big powerful man, went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? And I think we can all agree they are. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. <laughs> I can't read that without being like, and became clean like that of a young boy, and became clean like that of a young boy. I have no idea why that's funny to me. Uh, by the way, also really interesting, all Elisha says to the military commander Naaman is, just go wash yourself seven times in that river, and the man's offended because he wants a little more pomp and circumstance. You know what I'm saying? He wants something a little more complicated. He wants something a little bigger. Like, I could just I could wash myself in, in the rivers at home. I don't need to come all the way just to do that. By the way, the number of people I have met who are doing really, really great things. And when I get to talk to them about the amazing things that they're doing and how they got started and how they think about their work each day, they always talk about the small things. They always talk about the small things. And the people I know who have massive egos and assume that they're supposed to be a giant superstar and it's just never happened for them, they've never become as big as they think they're supposed to be, they're always, always people who don't do the small things. They don't just humble themselves and just do the simple, straightforward thing that's right in front of them every day. So here's this really powerful man, and he desperately wants to be healed of his infectious skin disease. And all the prophet said is, there's a river, just go wash in it seven times. And he leaves in a rage because he can't do the simple thing. And his assistants... His servants are basically like, wait, 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 wait. If the prophet had told you to do something really big and great, you would have done it. So just go do a small thing. So just go, wash, and be cleansed. And so he goes down to the river, and he's cleansed, and say it with me now. His flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. 
Then Naaman and all his attendants, so picture this giant entourage, went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Now, there's something really subtle going on here, but it's massive. Remember that this is, what, 3,000 years-ish ago? And that at that time, people had what are called localized deities. So if you lived in Aram, there was a god of Aram. If you lived in another country, there was that different regions, people worship different gods. And so when you went into battle, because everything was tribal consciousness, your tribe was your tribe, their tribe was their tribe, and when your tribe went to battle against their tribe, it was essentially your god, the god of your tribe and your soil, your nation, going to battle against their tribe, the god of their nation. And so what you had is each area, each group of people, each you know section of land had a particular god. So if you were traveling and you went through a, a foreign country, you would ask, well, what are the gods here? How do I make sure that they'll bless my travel as I travel through your country? What had happened with this Jewish tribe is they had this idea that had been birthed a while earlier that there was one god. And that there was one God, and that that one God was the source of all life. Now, think about this in early, early human thinking. If there's one God, and we all come from a single source, think about where wars come from. Wars come from our tribe against your tribe. Wars come from our God against your God. But this idea of one God, this idea of monotheism, this idea of a divine being that is a divine being above all the others. Think about this at a very subtle level. This idea that we all come from a singular source, that we are all brothers and sisters, would be a giant leap forward because there's a chance you could actually live in peace if you saw yourselves as united, having a common bond, all coming from a singular source, before you began to divide yourselves up into different tribes. By the way, some of you see exactly what I'm doing there. I talked in a long, long time ago about this idea, and yet you think about, is our world any different today? It's just as tribal conscious. All the different tribes competing against each other, sending their warheads against each other, but what if we all come from a single source? What if we are all one human family? What if we're all brothers and sisters? You can see how peace will not come until we move beyond tribal-centric thinking to some sort of larger, more enlightened perspective in which we come to see that we all are in this together, one tribe, one human family. So this is obviously thinking that only a few in the world are even beginning to embrace, and yet what's interesting is you can see the seeds of it way, way, way back here in the story. So when Naaman goes to Israel, goes from Aram to Israel, and he gets healed in Israel when he washes in the Jordan, the thing he says is, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. 
So what he is saying at some level, remember this is way early, very sort of early, 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 way before our time, and yet what he essentially saying is, I get it. There's only one God. Now, if you don't believe in God, or you have a hard time even using that word or thinking those categories, fine, totally get it, I'm totally with you, I understand what you're saying, so just go with me now and think about it in terms of human consciousness. What's happened when Naaman gets healed is he makes this very sophisticated leap in reasoning out of a tribal-centric, in some ways he's just tropping, swapping tribal gods, but when he says, in all the world, he's actually making a very sophisticated leap in thinking to the idea of one source from which everything flows. And so he says, now I know that this idea that there is one being supreme or that we all come from a singular source, I'm in, I get it. So he wants to give a gift because that's what you do when you're grat grateful, you give a gift. But the prophet, of course, he doesn't want like a gold watch. So the Elisha is like, come on now. What are you talking about? I will not accept a thing. Then Naaman says this, if you will not accept a gift from me, please let me, your servant, by the way, how does the story begin? With a powerful military commander who has had great victory. Now you have him referring to himself as a servant in the presence of this prophet Elijah. So remember the storytellers in the Bible, power, the switching of roles, the vulnerability of those who appear to have all the power. Power and intimidation and the people who seem to be pushing everybody else around is never what it seems. All power is temporary. Whoever's on top right now, hang out a little while because no one can stay on top forever. And no matter how much they bolster their strength and how much they work to crush all of the threats to their power, just give them enough time and somebody else will knock them off and come to power. It's a theme that comes up again and again and again in the scriptures. And here in this story, you have the storyteller basically having Naaman say, now, please let me, your servant, he's referring to himself as a servant, please let me be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Okay, why? See, Naaman's about ready to go back home to Aram, right? He's in Israel, he's just gotten healed, he's had this epiphany, this moment of enlightenment, this moment, there's only one true source of all life. I get it. Ah, he's had this, was that a little mermaid sound I just made? He has this like moment of higher consciousness. And so then his response is, okay, if you're not gonna take any gifts, I'd like something. I would like to have enough dirt that my mules can, as much, earth as my a pair of mules can carry because I'm not going to ever make any offerings or sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. And when he uses the word Lord, that's the word Yahweh. So that was the name of the specific God that the Israelites had had in their history was the God that essentially means God saves. But this was this idea of one divine being who was the true source of all life. Now, why does he want dirt? Well, think about it. The people in that day thought in terms of localized deities. There's a God in Israel. There's a God in that country. There's a God of that nation. 
there's a God in Aram. Every different place has its own God. There's a God of that section of land. There's a God of that part of land. There's the God of that part of land. So why does he want dirt from Israel? Because he wants to take a bunch of dirt home, put it down on the ground, and then when he does like his worship, he'll get on that dirt because it's Israel dirt, which must be then the Lord Yahweh dirt. (laughs) So do you see what's happened? He's had this moment of expanded consciousness, of, of, of enlightenment, of thinking at a higher level, of understanding something much more profound. But he still filters it through his own experience, through his earlier categories of understanding. So he now has this belief that there's one God who rules over all of the pieces of land, over all of the earth, but then he wants to take some dirt from Israel home with him because then when he goes to you know worship, pray, offer something, he'll offer it on a pile of dirt that he brought from Israel because then it'll be that God's dirt, essentially. Do you see how we can grow and see something new and have a moment of profound awakening and awareness and enlightenment and yet still be thinking in old categories? Do you see what a jumble he is of new and old? Do you see what he's got a new understanding sitting side by side with the same old categories and practices? He's, well, he's human. He's a lot like a lot of us. Because what happens is we tend to believe, oh, I have just broken through. Anybody ever had this feeling? I can't believe I used to think like that. Now I have these new understandings. Man, I am pretty sophisticated. And then five years later, you realized that that thing five years earlier that made you feel like you were so far along, later you're like, oh my word, I can't believe I was so backwards. Oftentimes, we have genuine divine moments of revelation and insight, but we filter them through our current categories and ways of understanding things. And so he says, I'd like to take some dirt back to Israel because this magic dirt will somehow bring that God with me. And then he adds something. And this is a thing actually that, that I find, this was a thing I was telling you about, that the exchange that I just find so unbelievably helpful. And then he adds this, he says, but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master, he's talking about the king of Aram, because see, now he's realizing he has to go back to work. So he's had this sort of experience, this epiphany, this opening expansion where he realizes that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, oh, I'm in with that God. But it's almost like he's now getting ready to go home and he's realizing, oh, wait, now I got to go back home. And home isn't going to be as easy as perhaps it used to be. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master, the king, enters the temple of Rimon. Now, Rimon was the god of Aram. 
When my master the king enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. So Naaman is getting ready to go back home. It's basically the last night of camp, and he's realizing, I've had this euphoric high, this incredible experience, but now i got to go back to the real world. And when I go back, I work for the king, and the king of Aram bows down to the god of Aram, and the god of Aram is a god named Rimon. And part of his job is to join the king and to stand next to the king and to go into the temple of Rimon with the king and bow down to Rimon with the king of Aram. And suddenly he's realizing, I don't believe in Rimon anymore. I'm, I'm in with Yahweh. But when I go back to work, part of my job is taking part in the worship of Rimon. So it's almost like this coda. It's almost like this thing he adds to the end where he just says to Elijah, man, here's the deal. I'm going to go back to work. And when I go back to work, part of what I have to do is I have to go into the temple of Rimon because my king leans on me. I'm his wingman. And when I am with the king to keep my job and to keep my head connected to my body, correct? Right? That's what's going on here. His life is at stake in many ways. Um, when, my aster, when my master enters the temple of Rimount to bow down and he's leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Now, the question is, because he basically says, I'm going to have to keep bowing down to Rimon to keep my job. I'm going to have to keep bowing down to Rimon because everybody around me bows down to Rimon. And while in my heart, I won't be bowing down, I'll still be having to go through the motions because that's how it works. That's, how, that's, that's what you do if you're in my, in my shoes. So how is Elisha going to respond to this? Because this is the prophet. This is the guy who lowers the boom. This is the guy, right? So you're waiting for the prophet to say, hey, stand for something, fall for nothing. You're waiting for the prophet to say, well, you need to be courageous, and you need to, you need to stand up for this. You need to announce to everyone. You need to pass out pamphlets for Yahweh, right? You're waiting for the prophet to just bring it and say, no way. You're either in or out. Turn or burn, dude, right? You're waiting for the prophet to unleash on him and say, no way. You turn from Rimon. You do not go into the temple. If you lose your job, that's just the cost of discipleship, right? You're waiting for the prophet to just unleash on him, for, Eli for Elisha to say, it is, there's no gray here, man. It's black or white. You tell the king that you now follow Yahweh. You proclaim the truth, whatever. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. It's that impulse that says it's really clear here. The Bible says just do it. And yet, what does Elisha say? Next verse, Elisha says to him, go in peace. That's it. Go in peace. Now, here's the really interesting thing. When a prophet would say to somebody, go in peace, the word peace is the word shalom, and that's referring to a what's called a covenantal relationship with the divine. And so this is the idea that the divine is with you. And in ancient Israel, they spoke of being in covenant relationship with Yahweh and that wherever you went, Yahweh was with you. God was with you. The peace and blessing of the divine rested upon you. Whatever you're doing, wherever you went, you had essentially God's favor resting upon you. 
So when Naaman says, man, my job is a bit sketchy, and it requires me to do some things that I no longer believe in, it's a little awkward. It's a little ambiguous. There's a little moral gray here. The prophet does not say, well, you need to make some decisions and stand for something. No, the prophet just says, go, go. The divine's with you. The divine is with you. God's favor rests upon you. You'll be okay. You'll be fine. Trust that. Here's why I find this so incredibly helpful. For so many people, the way that they were taught spirituality is, here are the rules, here are the truths, here are the absolute truths that are always true. Just do them, take a stand, it's clear, it's not gray, it's black and white, just do the right thing and then everything will be fine. And so oftentimes people sit and hear sermons and teachings and hear voices that just tell them, take a stand or you make a difference, be salt and light, which are all great images and great metaphors and great truths. But nevertheless, sometimes it's not clear what the right thing to do is. Some situations are morally ambiguous. Maybe you're in business, and every day you struggle with the tension of how to maintain your integrity, how to do the right thing when all the people around you are constantly bending the corners, bending the rules just a touch. Maybe you struggle with the relationship between ambition and contentment. Maybe it's, you're a parent, and there's like the way that it's done. There's a game that's played for everything from sports to clothes to social life to academics. There's a way the game is played, and you have this sense like, man, there's like a way that my kid is being taught to play the game, and yet I have some different values at key moments. And when do we just play the game as it's played? And when do we say, no, we don't do it? I know every other kid and their parents are doing that, but we don't do that. Or maybe for you, it's just about products and consumerism. Maybe you're aware of how many people in the world don't have enough. And so it's like, do we buy the new couch? Do we really need a new couch? Because sometimes you do need a new couch. And sometimes a brand new killer couch that was expensive is awesome because you sit on it and it makes life better for your family. Sometimes it's like, yes, let's buy the new couch and the new chair and the new carpet. Let's remodel the whole house. And then other times there's like, no, I can't do that. I've seen too much suffering. I've seen too much poverty. Let's take that money that we were going to spend on that and let's give it away. And neither decision is always the right one. It's a bit fuzzy anybody out there with me and here's the power of what elisha says is he just says because essentially what naaman says is man it is tough and i can't imagine what i'm gonna have to go through when i go back to the real world and my boss is bowing down to Rimon, and to keep my job and to keep all of the stuff, I got to bow down to Rimon, but I don't believe in Rimon anymore. And yet, is there any harm in that? Or do I just stay by my... It's a... And the prophet just says, God is with you. See, for many people, 
they were taught that God is in the elimination of tension. No, 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 it's not fuzzy, it's clear. And so for many people, the Bible was the book that you read to make things clear. I've even heard people refer to it as the owner's manual. Worst metaphor ever for the Bible. And so it's like, well, there's this list of clear instructions and just do those and everything will be fine. But if you actually live in the real world as a person of faith, you're confronted every day, probably, with multiple situations when it's not clear. Maybe some of you listening just need to know or just have never heard somebody say it's not clear. And it's not clear because you don't have enough faith. It's not clear because you do have faith. And this is why this story so has helped me. That when the prophet says, go in peace, he's saying, God is with you in the tension. See, I usually think, no, God's the one who solves the problem. No. God is the one who joins you in the problem. Well, God is the one who clears it up. No. God is the one who sits with you in the ambiguity. Well, God is the one who makes the path very clear so you can figure it out. No, God is the one who meets you exactly in the moment when you're trying to figure it out. The divine is with you in the sweat, the struggle, the second guessing, all those moments when you feel like you're violating your sense of self and you can't do that, and yet you don't know what is the next right step. Sometimes we feel triumphant. Sometimes it's very clear. Sometimes the moral compass is pointing in a particular direction and we just go and there's a cost and there's blowback and it's fuzzy and it's just, it's, it's ugly and there's blood everywhere, but we're like, but this is the right. But other times it's not so triumphant. Other times it's difficult and you're trying to figure out, do I go into business with them or them? Do we let our kid do this? Do we pay that crazy amount of money so that our kid can do that because everybody else is doing it? Or do we say, no, we don't do that? Uh, do we buy this thing or not that thing? Do we go here or not go there? All of those moments when it's like, I wish this was just more clear. And oftentimes, the number of people I've interacted with, with over the years who are in some situation that it is very difficult to figure out what the next right step is. And oftentimes they have the sense like something's wrong with them. Like if I was just more wise, intelligent, mature, spiritual, I'm sure this would be much more clear. Maybe not. The number of people who immediately said something must be wrong with them instead of it is difficult as a person of faith to make your way in the modern world. Can we all agree on that? And for every one of you who have ever been shamed because you seem to be muddling through it, sometimes muddling through it is the best you can do. Sometimes it's very difficult to find clarity. And when Elisha says to Naaman, go in peace, he's essentially saying, go ahead, go back to your real life in all of its struggle, in all of the questions, in all of the awkward dilemmas where you're not quite sure what the next right thing to do is, God's with you. You'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. He's already asking for some dirt for his mule. So he's already got like old categories that he's still in, even though he's had this new moment of insight. 
That's how we are. We're sort of a jumbled mess. And this story is about the divine companionship in the tension, in trying to figure it out, in the sweat, the struggle, the second guessing. Maybe for you, it's just a question of ambition. There's big things you want to do. And a part of you just wants to go, 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 and hustle, 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 and push, and work. And, and then there's a part of you that knows that when you shift into a particular gear, you're losing something of yourself. You're being consumed by your ambition. Ambition is good. Ambition is your friend. And yet there is this balancing act between ambition and contentment. Maybe you like nice stuff. You like good design. You like good houses, good clothes, good cars. You like to have the office look in a particular way. Maybe you like your kids wearing a certain kind of clothing. Maybe, maybe for you, you appreciate the finer things, and yet you also live with this awareness that the finer things are a gift. They elevate your soul, and yet you also live in a world where lots of people don't have even basics. And that's just a tension we live with. And when you feel guilty, remember tension means you're in the game. The tension means you're actually wrestling with it. Don't bemoan the tension. Be, be bothered when there is no tension. Because the tension means you're thinking it through. You're taking it seriously. And in my experience, so many people simply didn't pick up along the way this awareness that the tension is okay. It's okay. It means you're in the game. And this divine is present with you in it. So what is your, when my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow down also, may the Lord forgive your servant for that. What is your situation that you're just having a difficult time figuring out what the next right thing to do is? And maybe you're beating yourself up because it's more complicated than you think it should be. Stop beating yourself up for being in complicated situations. That's how the world is. Stop beating yourself up because there's not a nice, well-lit arrow showing you exactly what direction to go. Stop beating yourself up for the ambiguity. Ambiguity. That's how the world is. It's how the, it's how the world has been for thousands of years. May you hear Elisha's voice. Go in peace. Go in peace. Go in peace. You'll figure it out. It's okay. The divine is with you, even in those moments when you find yourself in the temple of Riman. May you, my brothers and sisters, may you embrace the tension, the sweat, the struggle, the second guessing, all those moments when you're like, why isn't this more clear? May you embrace it all as simply the reality of being a person of faith and conviction living in the modern world. May you find comfort in knowing you're not the first person who found things a bit awkward. May you celebrate that you are a jumbled mess of enlightenment and new ideas and old ideas and wisdom and earlier understandings and new understandings. May you celebrate the cacophonous, strange, glorious path that is your life. And may grace and peace be with you.